Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and this is SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and international affairs. This week, North Korea tests new missiles as China reportedly sends a missile into space. Berlin is closer uh, to North Korea than Seattle. London is closer than Los Angeles. So this isn't just a case of a concern for the United States. It's a global security concern. How a new space race could raise the risk of war. They intend to have um, full-spectrum dominance, uh, which means war fighting capability in space. And the need to challenge the culture of machismo in the military. Culture of a military hierarchy and that expectation that orders are obeyed, etc. It sets up a very uneven power dynamic within the relationships. The West's tilt to the Indo-Pacific has been a dominant theme this year and this week we've had two reminders why that's happening. North Korea is testing missiles again, this time a new submarine-launched ballistic missile, one that's potentially harder to track. It's the latest in a flurry of recent tests, but one that former National Security Advisor Lord Sedwill warns must be taken seriously. People sometimes think that North Korea is a long way away and why is this a, a matter for the UK? It's worth remembering the globe is round. And actually, Berlin is closer uh, to North Korea than Seattle. London is closer than Los Angeles. So this isn't just a case of a concern for the United States. It's a global security concern. Um, we need to act in concert with our allies, but also other partners like China, to try and uh, deal with any potential destabilising action by North, uh, by North Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark is with me. And Michael, we've got used to North Korean missile launches. Why is a submarine-based launch that much more serious? Well, it indicates a greater level of technical competence because I mean, putting missiles on submarines means that they can be sailing around underneath, in this case, the Pacific, and they will be pretty invulnerable. So it shows that North Korea is now joining the club of uh, seven or eight countries that can launch missiles from submarines. It's a fairly exclusive club. So it's a, it's a sign of, of technical competence, but also, of course, a, a, a submarine can, can travel a couple of thousand miles and then launch shorter range missiles. So it gives any country more options in the way in which it can target its potential enemies. And it's triggered an emergency meeting at the UN. But beyond that, what can Western powers actually do? Not very much, because uh, although uh, the um, the whole nuclear program of, of North Korea is under UN sanction. Those sanctions in reality are controlled by China. <clears throat> and as ever, the, the, the route to North Korea, to Pyongyang, is via Beijing. And interestingly, only in the last couple of days, it's been obvious that trade between Korea, North Korea and China has, has doubled since the uh, COVID uh, crisis got a little bit less. And North Korea is now even more dependent on China than ever before. So if the Chinese wanted to restrain North Korea's nuclear ambitions, it could. But it's the only power that can. And South Korea is developing its own weapons. There's a huge defence exhibition in Seoul this week. Are we about to see a new arms race on the Korean peninsula? I think we're already seeing it, yeah, because the South Koreans have got, they, they've, they do have some sophisticated weapon systems. They've developed their own submarine-launched uh, missile. One of the reasons that the North Koreans are pushing so hard is because South Korea are already doing it. So, yes, there is an arms race on the Korean peninsula. And the United States just agreed with President Moon of South Korea, I think only last week, that they would lift the range restrictions, which the South Koreans have always observed, on the range of their missiles. So South Korea is, in a sense, taking the gloves off in the competition with the North 
over particular weapon systems. So it's, it's becoming quite worrying. Well, news of that North Korean test came days after reports that China has been testing a nuclear-capable hypersonic missile. It's said to have circled the globe before speeding towards its target, a capability that reportedly took the US by surprise. James Acton, who's co-director of the Nuclear Policy Programme at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, says it highlights alarming gaps in America's defences. It is not designed to deal with China. It has never been designed to deal with China. It's designed to deal with North Korea. And frankly, I have severe uh, concerns that it couldn't intercept North Korean uh, ballistic missiles. Uh, it's certainly not capable of, of, of intercepting Chinese ballistic missiles, let alone this Chinese, uh, you know, so gliding fractional orbital bombardment system. So, you know, the reality is the U.S. has long been vulnerable to Chinese nuclear attack. This does not change the status quo. Uh, Michael Clark, China called it a routine test of a space vehicle, but both the US and UK expressed deep concerns. Yes, it, it certainly wasn't a routine test of a space vehicle, and nobody believes that. It looks as if the Chinese conducted uh, two tests, one maybe at the end of July or maybe just the beginning of August, and then another one um, uh, later on in, in August. What it showed that they could do was that this hypersonic vehicle was able to fly around the world to circumnavigate the globe and then, as it were, come down onto its target. It looks if it missed its target, actually. So the, the test was probably 90% successful, but the actual, the accuracy of targeting is the hardest bit for a hypersonic missile, um, but it will get better. The, the point about hypersonic missiles, uh, I think, as, as James Acton said, uh, in a way, they're, they're very hard to defend against, as indeed are ballistic missiles. So it, it increases that sense of vulnerability because it's very, very hard to defend against. Michael Clark, stay with us. While China may have denied testing a hypersonic missile, we know major world powers are investing in the technology. It's a potentially worrying development, according to Foreign Affairs and Tim Marshall. He spent decades covering conflict around the world and in a new book sets out why he thinks mountains, rivers and seas are even more important to a country than the leaders that run it. When I spoke to him earlier, he started by telling me what it is about China's hypersonic programme that so worries him. The reason that hypersonic missiles are so dangerous, not only in what they can achieve, but in the effect that they have on other countries and them therefore developing them and therefore there being an arms race. The crucial thing is that they don't go in an arc. Intercontinental ballistic missiles, terrible things, you can put nuclear weapons on them, but the moment they're launched, you, within a few seconds you can work out because of their arc what the target is and you can try and defend against them. A hypersonic missile can go straight up and then can fly in a straight line and then at a moment of the country that's fired its choosing, it'll go down onto its target. And therefore, it's ahead of the missile defence systems. And so consequently, if, if they are developed as they looks like they're going to be, the current missile defence systems will be obsolete. So you're going to get this arms race, both of hypersonic missiles. The Chinese are probably the most advanced, followed by the Russians and then the Americans who are now catching up quickly. But then everyone's going to need a new missile defence system, probably one based in space, and that will be part of the space arms race. So, you know, it, it, it's fascinating technology, but it, it, it does add another layer of danger uh, and a new potential war fighting domain. How does geography determine a country's geopolitics? It's the foundation of one of several determining factors in what happens to a country. 
because it matters in what direction its rivers flow, because that then determines where trade goes from and to. You know, it is as basic as that, where its frontiers are often. Now, of course, there's other factors, but I just argue strongly that if you don't know the geography of the place, you can't really understand the place. Where do you think the most likely future conflict is going to be and what do you think will cause it? I can give you some locations of potential conflicts, but I don't really think you can say they're the most likely. I mean, for example, there's great tension between Ethiopia and Egypt over the source of the Nile. India and Pakistan, you never know of a flashpoint coming up in, in Kashmir. Will North Korea's nuclear facilities spark a crisis? Taiwan, we all know about. So you can do that, but I'm not sure you can say, oh, that's the most likely. What I think you can say is that there are the push factors, and increasingly, climate change is amongst them, and climate change is pushing the movement of peoples. And the movement of peoples is pushing the tensions amongst peoples. Climate change is also pushing poverty. And I think when you get that rather unpleasant, heady mix, climate change, conflict and poverty, well, wherever they become most acute, that's when there's going to be flashpoints. And geography is always important in determining where wars are fought. But how is technology and new weaponry changing that? Some people argue that technology supersedes geography, and I disagree. I think it simply changes the emphasis, the geographic emphasis. And we'll give you an example. People said, oh, well, air power uh, means sea power doesn't matter anymore. Well, it's nonsense. 85% of goods still move by the sea. And so the, the sea lanes and the choke points are still crucial. They said, cruise missiles make geography irrelevant. No, they don't. I still have to launch it from somewhere and factor in the distance and the fuel required to get from A to B. And even now, even with cyber, geography is still playing a role. But of course, the technology does change things. I increasingly think, actually, that the technology that it's allowed us to go to space will mean that there, that there is now a geographic element of warfare in space. And we are increasingly going to have to factor in the geography of space, by which I mean the low Earth orbit belt where the satellites are, that is already an area of competition. And we will increasingly, hopefully, cooperate, but we will also compete out, out in space. And yeah, the technology has allowed us to do that, but that simply shifts where the geography is important. It doesn't mean that geography isn't important anymore. Yeah, and specifically on space, the race is on to have a presence beyond Earth. How likely do you think it is that there will be a war caused by space or be in space? In some ways, there's already an arms race in space, satellites. Last year, the Russians tested some sort of weapon where a satellite fired at another one of their satellites. We know from the history of mankind that the other great powers are not just going to say, well, they probably won't do it again. That race is already on. As for there being a war, certainly in the low Earth orbit, it's, it's really interesting that there is a new version of MAD, Mutually Assured Destruction. We all knew in the Cold War, if there's a nuclear war, we're all going to lose because we're all going to be destroyed. And it was a break. There's probably going to be a similar break in low Earth orbit because if there was an all-out war in low Earth orbit, 
they would be smashed to the extent that the debris would smash everybody's satellites. And given that the world economy increasingly depends on them, we would then smash the world economy and we would all lose. So there are breaks on, on um, fighting in space, but you know that the three major powers, Russia, America and China, have all now got space commands and they intend to have um, full spectrum dominance, uh, which means war fighting capability in space. So it's inevitable, it's going to be a domain of the military. What we need is to keep that mutually assured destruction idea in our heads and also to get the, the treaties signed because the technology is ahead of the law at the moment. Tim Marshall and his book, The Power of Geography, is out now. Well, let's pick that up with Professor Michael Clark. Michael, what do you make of that idea that the consequences of conflict in space are so great, no one would dare risk it? You've got to be sceptical about that. I mean, as, as Tim Marshall said, I mean, there's a degree of deterrence because that's inherent in relations between states. But I mean, we have this, this, this discussion or the world has had this discussion, you know, with the, the onset of gunpowder, with the creation of heavy artillery, with the arrival of aircraft in the 20th century, then with nuclear weapons, now with cyber. I mean, the fact is that war and conflict is inherent in uh, international relations, the possibility of it, and nothing is too terrible to be used. And so, as, as Tim implies, if, if powers could think of a way or find a way to get an advantage by using space, they will do so in a period of conflict. They may be deterred, because, as he said, that, that there is so much debris up there at the moment. There's about almost a million pieces of debris, ranging from little flecks to things the size of your hand or spanners, literally spanners flying around in space. If, if satellites began to disintegrate, there'd be so much debris that there'd be a massive sort of fratricide between satellites, because every satellite would produce another 100 or 200 or 500 pieces of debris, and it would become a cumulative process. So the idea that the whole of the of, of the, the system would go dark very quickly is quite a powerful one. But believe me, if, if a power felt that they could get around it, they probably would. I think this is a subject we'll be revisiting sometime in the future, Michael. Stay with us. This is Zitrap. There's much about military life that is unique, but could that create risks to those who share that life with some serving personnel? Researchers from King's College London have spoken to dozens of victims of abuse and violence in relationships with current or former military personnel. And what many said was that factors linked to life in the forces can make those problems even worse. He became very much of a, I'm the man, I'm in the army, and you should do as I tell you. Obviously, the army has the rank structure, and it always seemed like he brought that home with him. So he was still a soldier, and you were underneath him. He was aggressive pre-joining the army, but military life certainly made his behaviour a lot worse. It escalated rapidly. After his first tour of duty, he changed, and it continued to get worse. He was holding a hammer above my head, and my daughter, who was four at the time, just walked in and asked if she could have a packet of crisps. She wasn't shocked. She wasn't anything. That's when I thought, I've got to leave. Some of the experiences highlighted in the report, which cites a military culture of machismo and hierarchy as a key factor. Catherine was married to a soldier for 10 years. Problems started when her husband returned from Afghanistan. It kind of started with him acting withdrawn from myself and the two children. 
But prior to them going on deployment, we do get sent a leaflet that just says there will be a period of adjustment when they return. Before I knew it, we were kind of eight, nine months down the line and the snappiness then had turned to anger, really. It was a bit treading on eggshells around him, being a bit worried that it was going to become violent or um, escalate, um, which it did, unfortunately, the Christmas of that year. After, you know, a night out for Christmas, we'd had a really lovely night out. Um, but on the way home, he just, you know, it's like a switch went and he just started on me in the taxi. We got home to the house. Um, there was a physical assault in the house where the police had to be called. Um, I was taken to hospital. The next day, the police officer that came out to see me um, was ex-military himself. He told me that if I took it any further, the army would have to be called. He, he would be disciplined, it's quite possible. He would be kicked out of the army. So I didn't take that any further. It did progressively get worse. I kind of really went into myself, stopped being myself. And I think that then becomes the more, the psychological abuse, the gaslighting. I think that for me was the worst. And it got to the point where you felt you needed to leave to keep your children safe. I did, yeah. I was really worried he was going to start to harm them. And yeah, it, it got to the point where I just had to say, I, I, you know, I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't, um, I couldn't be with him. I, I didn't want to, to be with him anymore. And then it was at that point that he had his breakdown in front of myself and the children. And it was only at that point that he then told us everything that he's been going through, that he was going off in his head. And it kind of, as, as crazy as the things that he was telling us, it helped in a way because it helped make sense of the last 18 months of craziness. What did he say to you? So, for example, he would, um, when he would come home, he'd be very, it's like he couldn't look at me. So he would act like someone who you would think that, you would think that he was having an affair. So I would say, you know, why are you being like this? You know, is there somebody else? And then he'd, he would flip on me and say, you know, why I can't believe you would say that to me. You must be doing something. But then when he had the breakdown, um, he was hallucinating and sort of seeing Taliban around us or seeing voices in his head or feeling guilty that he shouldn't have this family because his friends didn't. So he was hallucinating around me. So when he was looking at me, he was he was basically seeing Taliban around me or hearing voices. So that's why he wouldn't look at us. And through this, how much support did you get? Did he get? Nothing. It was after his breakdown. I mean, the week after his breakdown, I have to say, was, was absolutely was the worst week of my life. Because even though, you know, he, he wasn't in the house, but it was a week of constant messages and begging me not to leave him. But then if I would talk to him on the phone and he was in the company, say, of his own family, he would be screaming down the phone at me so that they didn't know anything. So we were going through all of that. Um, I do. I mean, I reached out to the Army Welfare Service myself, told them everything that he told myself and the two children. They said clearly he has combat stress, as they called it. And I, I really thought, you know, great, someone's going to someone's going to do something here. Um, but then when they said, well, you know, you need to get him syringes. We can't do anything until he speaks to us. So no help. No help. He wouldn't. He wouldn't speak to the to them. He again was messaging me. I, I literally had to kind of I suppose blackmail him into it because I said, if you don't speak to them, they're going to speak to your commanding officer. And it was only at that point that he rang them. They then ran me back and said, no, he's absolutely fine. Um, if you need any help with the divorce, just let us know. That was it. What difference do you think the right kind of support would have made to your situation? I think it would have got him the help if they'd have just 
listened. I mean, like I said, I had hundreds and hundreds of text messages. My children witnessed his behaviour. My own mom received distressing phone calls from him. There was a family, our friends that were around us. They were all saying how different he was. I had the police report. I had pictures of the injuries. There was so much that if you put me up in a court of law, I could have proved he was doing these things. But all he had to say is he wasn't and he was fine. And that was it. I do work with other women. I have, I have support groups myself. I know there were 25 ladies that were interviewed um, for this report, but you can times that by 10 were the ones that are in my support group. And we would all say the same, that you just were not, you just were not listened to. Catherine talking to me earlier about her experiences. Well, the MOD says it welcomes this latest research and points to its own domestic abuse strategy, saying it's firmly committed to raising awareness. The report was written by consultant psychiatrist Dr Deirdre McManus. In all of the interviews that we've done, both with civilian spouses and serving and ex-serving military personnel, it's a very strong theme that Catherine describes of abuse occurring following return from deployment and that period of reintegration back into family life. And also the issues with mental health difficulties and in particular PTSD. We must bear in mind that this is, you know, a number of years ago now and that the military have made a lot of effort in that intervening time to try and change things. But these themes are still common, especially with, with civilian spouses. And what Catherine describes seems to be as a consequence of the stresses of deployments. But your research suggests there are deeper factors within the military culture. Whilst the post-deployment issue and mental health issues like PTSD were a very strong theme, other strong themes emerged associated with military culture and lifestyle. In particular, themes such as the military attitude to gender. And lots of our civilian spouses and partners talked about the expectations of, of female spouses in comparison to their military personnel partners. Pair that with their partners being immersed in this culture of a military hierarchy and that expectation that orders are obeyed, etc. It sets up a very uneven power dynamic within the relationships. And how much thought do you think has been given in the past to helping personnel adapt their behaviour to be perhaps a different person at home compared to the one they have to be when they're at work, when they're on duty? We have spoken to the military about this recently. They're, they're very open to hearing about our research findings. But targeting the difficulties or targeting the traits or behaviours that military personnel may have that are very adaptive in a military environment to their home environment is not an easy task. You know, in particular, our civilian spouses talked about this culture of minimisation and normalisation of violence, the aggressive style of communication that they are immersed in within their work environment and then how that spills over into the home environment. That's not an easy task. So the military has done a lot of work on, on mental health and providing mental health support. But it's a wider issue helping military personnel to regulate strong and difficult emotions, to regulate their behaviours, um, which are necessarily quite different in the home environment to how they're expected to be, perhaps, within their military environment. And it is three years since the MOD set out a strategy on domestic abuse. Um, how much of your kind of research is filtering through? How much is the message getting across? Well, actually, the, the military, the MOD, have been very open to our research and have worked with us in trying to get that disseminated within the, the military 
ranks. We've done a lot of dissemination work. We've spent a lot of time discussing our findings with them and they, they want to have ongoing conversations about how they can review their domestic abuse strategy in line with our findings. Dr Deirdre McManus from King's College London. News, discussions and analysis. This is Zitrep. Finally today, he broke every glass ceiling how one friend of Colin Powell paid tribute to the first black man to lead America's military. He would later become the first African-American Secretary of State, but it was in that job that he made a controversial case for war. Colin Powell died this week at the age of 84 after contracting coronavirus. Paul Osborne looks back at his life, starting with Powell's own account of his early years. Hi, I'm former Secretary of State Colin Powell. 100 years ago, a young immigrant left a dirt farm in Jamaica and set out for America. Three years later, a ship pulled into New York Harbor and a young Jamaican woman gazed up at the Statue of Liberty for the first time. They became my parents and they inspired me to finish college and join the Army. This began a journey of service that would take me from basic training to combat in Vietnam, up the ranks to serve as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and Secretary of State. It was, by any standard, a remarkable rise. Born in Harlem, Powell grew up in the Bronx and rose to prominence as Ronald Reagan's national security advisor. Later, as the first black chairman of the Joint Chiefs, he would oversee the first Gulf War. Colin Powell advocated a cautious use of America's military power, always demanding clear goals and a credible exit strategy. Former British Foreign Secretary Jack Straw. He was one of the greatest uh, American diplomats and soldiers of all time. He was incredibly level-headed, and because he'd seen military action at the front, he had no romantic illusions uh, about war, none at all. And that's, I think, a feature of all those who've actually served in the front line. He hated the idea and believed that the necessity of maintaining a strong defence programme in the US was to prevent wars, not in order to uh, prosecute them. Powell was also, according to current US Secretary of State Antony Blinken, someone who commanded enormous loyalty. Secretary Powell was simply and completely a leader and he knew how to build a strong and united team he treated people the way he expected them to treat each other and he made sure that they knew he would always have their back the result was that his people would walk through walls for him iraq would return to the top of powers in tray as secretary of state in the months after the 9-11 attacks it was he who presented America's case for war to the United Nations, a case now known to be hugely flawed. Saddam Hussein and his regime have made no effort, no effort, to disarm as required by the international community. Indeed, the facts and Iraq's behavior show that Saddam Hussein and his regime are concealing their efforts to produce more weapons of mass destruction. Colin Powell would later call it a blot on his record. Former U.S. Army Commander David Petraeus. He did feel that uh, he was let down. Uh, he, he felt that he was pushed into this. Uh, but this is where the team player does what the team needs him to do. Uh, he obviously didn't suspect that the intelligence was flawed. But yes, this is as he has acknowledged. Uh, again, this will be a paragraph, and for him, I'm sure, a, a painful paragraph in his 
uh, obituary. Colin Powell was frequently spoken of as a potential U.S. president, a Republican, but he later backed Democrat Barack Obama against his own party and in 2020 supported Joe Biden rather than back Donald Trump. Frankly, said U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, it's not possible to replace Colin Powell, a tremendous personal friend and mentor. Paul Osborne, looking back at the life of Colin Powell, Professor Michael Clark, for all the praise of Colin Powell this week, all his obituaries come back to that flawed case for war in Iraq nearly 20 years ago. Yes, they do. I mean, the intention at the time was to sort of replicate that famous case during the Cuba crisis when um, uh, um, uh, Ambassador Stevenson, Adlai Stevenson, as it were, did a, a tremendous act at the at the UN. You know, he got the Russian ambassador Zorin to say, we don't do this, we don't do that, we haven't done this. And then he said, so what, Mr. Ambassador, is all of this? And he revealed the photographs of, of uh, missiles on Cuba. It was devastating to the reputation of the Russians. And they tried to recreate that but the difference between Cuba and this was that in the Cuba crisis, the intelligence was very good and pretty accurate. In this case, the intelligence was terrible. I mean, he was actually given lousy information. At one point, I mean, they even produced a photograph of a, of a, a vehicle and they said, this is a, a mobile chemical lab. And it turned out that it, it was a mobile lavatory and chemical toilets, yes. Um, but it was chemical only in that sense. And all this evidence, it fell to pieces within about 48 hours once the press started to investigate all the things he'd said. So uh, as David Petraeus said there, he was doing a job for the team. I'm sure he believed what he was given, but my goodness, he was given terrible intelligence and he did the best for it. However, I think his own his own reputation is so high, I don't think it will, this won't hang on him uh, because in every other respect, he had tremendous integrity, but he was let down by the people around him on that occasion. Professor Michael Clark, thank you very much. And that is it for this week. My thanks to all of my guests. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP and at bfbs.com slash SITREP. You can listen back to past programs and find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye.